So first off, I'd like to welcome everybody to the Community Matters Conference call. These calls are part of a series that we've been running for a couple of years now, uh, and they're brought to us with huge thanks from the folks at the Orton Family Foundation as a way to connect really great people and great ideas across the country. And if you were tuning in while people were introducing themselves, we, we really do have the country covered today. My name's Bonnie Shaw, and I'll be your moderator for the call today. And today we're talking about engaging diversity. And so I just want to read you a little blurb from the Community Matters website as a, an introduction to this call. Youths and elders, young families and baby boomers, red staters and blue staters, tea partiers and progressives, the 1% and the 99%. All people of different ethnic backgrounds, engaging an increasingly diverse group of people in shaping the future of our communities is one of the greatest challenges we face today and meaningfully engaging them is even harder. So today we're going to talk about uh, engaging diversity and we're joined by two fantastic speakers. We've got Catherine, uh, sorry, Carolyn Lickenmeyer, who's the Executive Director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse and the founder of America Speaks. And uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with her work. And then we also have Monica Palmquist-Selakez, Community Advisory Team Member from Cortez, Colorado, Heart and Soul Project. So both of these wonderful women are going to give us some really great insight into the work that they've been doing and the projects that they've been working on. And we're really looking forward to a super engaging and highly energizing conversation. So before we get started, I just want to go over a couple of the ground rules for the call. Uh, if you've been on a Community Matters call before, I'm sure you're familiar with the protocols. But to start with, uh, the, the thing that we ask you to do first is put yourself on mute. Uh, like I said, we are expecting about 100, 150 people on the call today. So um, we, we do ask that you, uh, you mute your lines so that we can we don't all talk over the top of each other or, or have a lot of background noise. We also have a Google Doc. The link is available via the blog post on the Community Matters website. And we use that document to take notes throughout the call. Uh, we also use it to add case studies, and it's also where you can ask questions. So I would encourage everyone on the call to jump onto the document and uh, and dig in and, and feel free to take notes as people are talking, um, and then add any links or case studies of your own that you think would be really useful. At the end of this call, we turn that into a PDF and we distribute it um, via the website to anyone that's interested in learning more about the topic. So it becomes a really great resource. Uh, the other thing we use that document for is to ask questions, as I mentioned. So if you do have a question you'd like to ask our speakers today, please type it into the document. There are a couple of great ones in there already, sorted under particular topics. So uh, throw it in, throw your question in there, and please add your name at the end of the question, and that'll give me a cue to be able to, to call you out by name to ask your question, so you can take yourself off mute and ask your question direct and, and have a chat with Carol and Monica. So, uh, please don't hesitate to speak up and often. So, uh, this is a really great chance for you guys to have a chat with both of these women doing such amazing work across the country. Uh, so, please do add your questions in and I'll try and get through as many of them as we can today. So, the format for the call today, we'll get started with some short introductions from both our speakers and then open up for the questions and then we'll finish off with a couple of ways to take immediate action. So without further ado, I will hand over to Carolyn to get us started. Take it away. Bonnie, thank you very much, and I'm truly delighted to be on the call today. Um, I, as Bonnie said, my current role is at the National Institute for Civil Discourse, which was created after Representative Gabby Giffords was shot at your Congress on the corner and sort of is a clear nadir of a moment of the political dysfunction in our culture. And, of course, I spent 17 years before that at America Speaks, but most important, I want the people on the call to know that I'm actually a board member at the Orton Family Foundation. So I'm very familiar with the work that's been done in specific communities and delighted today to be sharing this webinar with Monica, who is in a current Heart and Soul Project in Cortez. And between the two of us, we hope to put out a kind of combination of critical issues and principles, but as much just on-the-ground, nitty-gritty 
um, how-to and kind of emboldened by some stories that will really help people make choices about how you want to do this in your own communities. And I know that from the check-in that we did with a few of you as we started, that you are from organizations that are very sophisticated about citizen engagement and do this kind of work all the time, and that we at America Speaks had the pleasure of partnering with several of you. But I want to talk first about, I think there is a fundamental question that can drive the overall strategy and tactics you use for outreach in your work. And I'd just like to frame up that question for a moment. It's very straightforward. Who needs to be in the room and in what proportion to ensure this process will be credible? And the process needs to be credible with three primary audiences. It needs to be credible with whoever the authorities are that have the power to make the decision in terms of what your topic is, whether it's planning, whether it's budget priorities, whether it's a policy issue. So it has to be credible with decision makers. It has to be credible with the media because you're going to need the media's help. You're going to need the media's help in outreach and you're going to need the media's help in terms of the reporting outcomes and holding people accountable, accountable at the end of the process. And most critical to the success of this kind of work is it has to be credible to the public themselves. You know, we really have changed as a culture in terms of ordinary people's desire to be involved and to have ownership over things that impact their daily lives. And there's still in many communities a tremendous amount of conventional wisdom about the public in terms of citizen engagement. And at America Speaks, we found all of that conventional wisdom actually is erroneous. Um, one of the pieces of wisdom is that people don't have enough information on the issue. And for certain, if it's a very complex transportation interchange that's being done, of course they won't start with the information, and frankly, they don't need the technical information that experts have, but the information they will have is what you need to know from them about how this impacts their lives. A second conventional wisdom that just is not true is that most people don't have the time to do this. Well, we are living in an age when none of us have time to do everything we want to do. But in our experience, when the public understands that their voice is going to make a difference, they really make time to participate. They don't take time when they don't think they'll be heard and when they don't think there'll be any actual impact of what they state. So... In America Speaks work, we were almost always working on policy, planning, or budget priorities. So we started in the answer to who needs to be in the room with the basic demographics of the community, of the relevant community, and literally used the census data as our target. Now, in many cases, there are additional demographics that you have to take into consideration. One example that pops to my mind is we did health care reform in the state of California in 2007, for example. And in addition to the core demographics, which were very important, we needed to have the right number of people in the room by where they get their insurance. Were they covered by a government program, by their employer, by a private insurer, or do they have no insurance at all? And I'm sure all of you in the call immediately see the logic of why that particular data point about the people was just as important as the income spread in the room. So part of your task is given the issue that you are asking the community to participate in is to make sure that you have asked all the critical questions about data about the population that needs to be represented. Now I also want to talk about Every community that we've ever worked in, and we've worked in all 50 states and 15 other countries around the world, I have not ever been to a community where there are not two subgroups in the community that whoever is sponsoring the work already has built up a lot of ideas about. The first one, and I know you all use this term yourself, the first one is the usual suspects. I know many of you are from planning teams or firms. Well, there is that subset of people who show up at every planning meeting in any community, and you can predict what they're going to say before they even speak. We should never discourage the usual suspects from participating because they're a backbone of citizen activism in the community. 
But the dilemma is for them not to be the dominant voice or to be a voice in this proportion to their actual demographic status in the community. The second generic group that is in every community we've ever been in are those populations in the community that everybody is convinced just won't come no matter what you do. In some communities, it's a minority group. Sometimes it's young people. Sometimes it's old people. Sometimes it's low-income people. Sometimes it's the latest immigrant group. But it's a real belief that these people won't participate in this kind of public forum. Well, that tells you you've got to do some steps of first you who are sponsoring the project. You have to come in contact either with members of that community directly, or that may not be possible, very understandably, than with representatives of organizations who work effectively with that community. I think of Bangor, Maine, that had a huge influx of Ethiopian people over a period of time until it became a critical mass in the community that was of such a large critical part of the population it began to shift some cultural norms. And yet the general way the city did engagement, the general way planning was done, had never really opened up the doors to the Ethiopian community in an effective way. What finally changed that was working with the social service agencies that daily interfaced with the Ethiopian community so that people could do listening sessions to say, you're here. We need you to be part of the fabric of determining the future of our community. How do we need to frame this? What needs to be done to ensure that you know that it's important that you participate? Things that are often run into in that territory are transportation, language barriers, child care needs. And frankly, in some cases, it is just a stigma that the perception is the community holds about that particular population in the community. So critical points. Who needs to be there? Who, what people or organizations already have a trust relationship with those segments of the population that are the hardest to reach in your community? And then let me spend the remainder of my time with you talking about the multi-level of strategies if you really want the whole community to be in the room, the multi-level tiered kinds of strategies that are likely to attract them. Most traditional media, we always think of the local radio station, the local newspaper. We often don't think of the more micro-media in a community. What's the neighborhood newspaper? What is the list serve that serves this part of Damariscotta compared to a different part of Damariscotta. So not just going with the dominant news media, but really doing the survey of your community of those media that are connected to each of the subpopulations in the community. Clearly, the organizational infrastructure in the community is the next place to look for your partnerships for outreach. You know, People always think of going to the African-American churches as a very effective outreach medium for the African-American community. And in most communities, that's true. It's also probably not enough to assume that the church network is the only organizational network that you should be working with with the African-American community. So it's the analysis in your community of what's the organizational infrastructure that reaches out to each and every one of the subpopulations in our community. You really want to use the leadership, whatever your initiative is. In the heart and soul work of Orton, which Monica will talk more about, obviously there's the desire for the, this to be citizen-driven, but in the end, it does have to be connected to the city authority structure in terms of the city manager or mayor council, whichever the system is, in terms of its community's planning department. So you want those people involved visibly. You want a quote from the planning director which says, we intend to listen. So it is getting the legitimization, the letting the public know that what they do and how they participate really does matter. Equally important are thinking of creative ways, the addition of art, the addition of video, 
the addition of a game day, something that the community itself can create that is a preliminary step to the actual substantive engagement process. And I know that Monica will tell you a few stories about that. The last thing I want to say to you, you need a system. We do it by computer with a spreadsheet that as people are signing up, that people are letting you know you come, you're actually keeping track of how each of these various groups are signing up to join you or not. You'll never have a completely accurate picture, but by keeping track of it as it's developing, it allows you to increase your outreach in those areas of the community that haven't responded as well and to not put as many resources into the area of the community that is responding really quickly. And then, honest to goodness, the bottom line here is literally the commitment that we will continue the outreach. It's a matter of will and persistence. We will continue the outreach until every one of those targets that we met actually has been achieved. I'm going to stop there. I'm hoping that that gave you a kind of principle and focus for some how-tos. I didn't tell very many specific stories. Monica will pick up on that, and then I'll add some more detail at that level as we move into the Q&A. But thank you very, very much. Thanks so much, Carolyn. That was a fantastic grounding and introduction. Um, Monica, I'd love to hand over to you now to share some of your personal stories about working in your community. Um, do you want to take it away? Sure. My name is Monica Ponquist Velasquez. Um, I was born in Mexico City. I was brought to, in my teens, to the United States of America. And, um, I went from there basically. I have the walking and living experience of what it's like to be an immigrant in this community. I have experience and see from my own eyes why is that the diversity community or minority communities don't get involved. And I can tell you some of that because I have experienced myself and to break away from gener gener uh, generational poverty and how to break through those, how to how I did it. You know, sometimes I wonder myself, how in the world I judge so many bullets, so many statistics. And I can tell you why I'm so passionate about heart and soul, but um, let me tell you, first of all, I'm calling you from Cortez, Colorado. We are in the Four Corners area, where is, uh, um, we are an hour away from uh, New Mexico or an hour to the south. We are an hour away from Arizona to the west, an hour away to the north um, west of Utah, or we are just 10 minutes away from uh, the mountains in the Four Corners area. Uh, so we are the last two towns of uh, uh, Colorado, and uh, depends on your location or where you're going, that's where we at. So my mother said, if you find a Walmart in your town, chances are you can find us in the map. So that's where we are. So we're a town of 17, 1,800 people, and uh, we I'm representing the minority. Uh, we are the 11% of Hispanic immigrants in this community, and we are working very, very hard with the Heart and Soul Project. So now you might ask, what is Heart and Soul? Well, it's really an initiative that tries to do things differently. And uh, it's a grant that was given to a small town of Cortez, Colorado, through the foundation, the Family Orton Foundation. I was privileged to be invited by my husband, who was the initial person to be invited, actually. And he came to me and said, you know what, I don't think I can make it to this uh, fantastic project. Would you like to come in? And I said, sure, tell me what it's about. So I read about it, and I say, here's the next upcoming meeting, and would you like to come in? And I said, sure, I'll go. So after I came in, I say, and when I heard the first word talking about diversity, and I said, here is, this is what I need to be. So I'm not new in the or, uh, volunteerism of the uh, nonprofit organization because I have done it for almost eight years now. I have translated many, many programs. I started with the uh, Child Help International, where I got my certification as an advocate for child abuse and domestic violence, too. And so I've been advocating for several years with not much success within the Hispanic community until I met Heart and Soul in Cortez. So, um, and I would like to um, discuss with you what it's like and what action steps that I've been taking through this project. Um, and uh, I will be talking about that in a little bit. And I just basically developed four different steps that has been working and is resonating right now throughout my community 
it's been it's getting so big by the day I have not enough of people to work towards this. But I can tell you that the major values that we have is the major um, treasure that people can have to break from generational poverty to involvement in the community. It's time, effort, and will. Those are the main three things that I have discovered throughout this project that I continue to discover is that I need to have the will to persevere and come and knock at the door when people said no. I can tell you and give you some examples, maybe some stories that might touch you to what it's like to understand why is that minorities don't get involved in this project. So, um, and that is in short what I've been doing in this community and why we been advocating throughout this project and what is resonating so much. So I look forward to your questions, and I pass it on to you, Bonnie. Thanks so much, Monica. Um, that's a, a really great start. So uh, what I would love to do now is, um, is throw it open to a, a bunch of questions, and I think I'll, I'll start up in the, the first section here in the Google Doc, and if you do have questions you'd like to ask, please please do make sure you make the time to add them into this document. Uh, the first section that we have here is around making the case. And there's a great question to kick us off from Rob from D.C. Rob, if you're on the line, do you want to take, take yourself off mute and ask this question? If we don't have Rob, I will uh, I will paraphrase. Uh, the question that Rob's asking is, please talk about the why of engaging diversity. If I'm talking to a board member or a uh, or staff of an organization, what is the argument for why they should spend time and resources on this? Um, and and it's it's similar to a couple of other questions in that section. So when organizations or, or governments have other priorities, why should they be focusing on diversity? Uh, Monica, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Yes. Number one, because we're human, we're here, and we wish not to be invisible, even though in many cases we are. We are here, and we are a small diversity, or we are maybe the majority of the diversity. It doesn't really matter. We still consider diversity, maybe because of our language, of our uh, different color, skin colors, race plays a role, whether we want to accept it or whether we're not. We're here. We're humans. We want to be here. We want to talk about diversity, and it's important because we're part of the society. Our children are and, part of the society. And, Monica, is there any any examples you can share from your work um, recently that, that you can share on some examples about how bringing in a more diverse group has, has really helped some of those organizations around their decision-making? Yes. Um, it's bringing present into the Hispanic community. When you represent it, see, for every good leader, there has to be a good representative of the diversity group. And when you start bringing presence into the uh, community meetings, into the uh, council meetings, they say, oh, oh, then we got to talk, think about this person. Yes, you bring changes in policy, and, and also you are influenced in how people view the Hispanic community, in my, in my case. Could I add something to that? Sure. I think one, of, one of the reasons why this is so important, in addition to Monica's eloquent statement about because we're here and we're human and we're part of the community, from the decision maker's point of view, we're now living in a time when to implement a policy or implement a budget or implement a plan, if the community doesn't feel ownership of the plan, there's a multitude of ways in which the implementation can be slowed down, disrupted, stopped, whether that's by a legal means, whether that's by just a resistance means. So I think it's taken some time, but more and more officials at all levels of government are understanding that Yes, if you invest the resources to ensure the diversity of the community is present in this early stages of the process, it means, if I take the Orton phrase, it means you have the heart and soul of the whole community to make it a reality. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'd love to hear some, some specific examples um, of how this has played out in communities that, that either or both of you have worked in 
Carolyn, are there um, are there examples or stories that you can tell about when you've had to actually make this case when people haven't seen it as being something that's, that's crystal clear from the outset? What I can say is that it's resonating right now. Um, before I took uh, part of the Heart and Soul Project, that probably remained kind of invisible community when I moved to Cortez. And um, it was basically just saying, hey, you know, if Heart and Soul is about diversity, let's make it diversity. I need to be there. I need to represent it. But you need to understand also what are the things that keep people from coming forward? The minorities, what is it keep them from being not maybe less afraid? I can tell you a story really quickly what it's like. In my community, any Hispanic that sees the police, it means something to them. It means fear. It means probably deportation. It means that they're probably going to incarcerate them. They're probably not going to make a home for dinner. And to understand that fear is to really understand what is the root of it. That's one example that I can give you. Mm-hmm. That's uh that's a really great insight and I think um I think it would be great if you if you have other examples or, or perhaps some other people on the call can share some examples um by adding to the notes that we're taking in the Google Doc. I think that would be really useful. Um so I'm I'm really interested in this uh this idea of making a, a case. So um I I understand the challenges around um, the fear or the, the associations that people might have in speaking up or becoming engaged. Um, I'd love to know how you you really make a case to some of these organizations about um, about how important this is and, and why they should engage with it. I what guess I could, I could we've, we've worked with a lot of, this is Carolyn, we've worked with a lot of mayors and we've worked with a lot of county commissions um, we've worked with House and Senate budget committees. Many people would be interested on a national level for a moment, which I realize is not the scale that most people on the call will resonate with, but given our political dysfunction, I think you could think of exactly the same thing in your community or your village. Mm-hmm. When we began our project on getting the public's voices into how to solve the debt and deficit piece, the case that really worked with leaders was they are hearing constantly from the special interest groups are pushing them to go one direction or another direction or, you know, don't raise taxes, don't cut entitlements. And what really made them open to taking seriously the viewpoints of just random American citizens was the fact that they understood that they don't know what the public actually thinks about this. And they even understood that most poll questions about this the issues are often framed to get the answer that whoever was paying for the poll wants. So Mm -hmm. one of the best ways to make the case is to show to the public official, to the decision maker, how the data that you bring them from the community will give them a set of understanding and a set of information about the issue that they actually can't get any other way. Yeah, that's fantastic. And do you think that plays out on a on a local level as well? Well, I think in in many of the communities that I heard people are from, you've seen this on resource issues in your communities where the appropriate authorities made a decision, but the decision never takes hold because in fact it's stopped by a protest or by a lawsuit. So in that case, a way to make the case is if, in fact, everybody is part of this decision and we reach some collective understanding, then the things we've had to spend time and money and resources on to get from decision to implementation actually go away. That's also a very effective case. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to be talking about how to reduce school dropouts, and the thousands of meetings that have gone on in this country about what to do about people not graduating from high school. And yet in most communities, the last group of people that get called to the table to have that discussion are people who have dropped out of high school. So there, there's a, I've actually often seen, Bonnie, it's just like a moment of common sense logic is a mm-hmm. way to make the case. 
who actually has the most life experience expertise about this issue? You know, Thomas Jefferson said this way back at the beginning of the of our nation that the best public my paraphrase, but the best public policy comes from the very wise integration or the very excellent integration of expert knowledge and wisdom that comes from the public. And he chose those two words. Wisdom is what I learned from my life experience. That's what a decision maker can never get from an expert. And Monica's own personal story couldn't be a better example of that in terms of our today's conversation. That Mm -hmm. is correct. I had it to use, this is Monica speaking, I had it to use my example and say, listen, this is what it feels like to be an immigrant here, not speaking the language, not knowing what culture you are in. You have to face some kind of shock culture before you begin to understand and I say, okay, I can adapt I can make it, I can make it happen. One way that I have made my case in front of the uh, government agencies, police agencies right now that we're working in, with education departments that we're currently working with, is to say, listen, this is what it is like. You are afraid all the time. You feel that people sometimes are pointing at you and looking at you in the sense of saying, you're not smart enough because you don't speak English or something like that. You kind of feel stereotyped. So one of the cases that I'm making with a Hispanic community is say, hey, listen, I got some facts here. We're in this Montezuma County in, in, the, in the city of Cortez, Colorado. We are 28, excuse me, 2,818 people. We are the 11% of the population. Are we going to ignore them or are we going to help them? I'm making my case by sometimes showing them some facts. Hey, listen. One in five kids are Hispanic in our high schools or in the middle school. Are we going to ignore them? You need to understand that the kids are the ones that are learning the language, but the parents aren't. Can we bring back the ESL program to help them and to empower them that they have a voice, that they, can, they have the right to express, to help the children succeed? See, we, we're coming to the big numbers here, and I, ha- I have a, one little fact right here. But by the age 2015, 138.8 million Hispanic will constitute 30% of the total nation's population in the United States of America. If that doesn't tell you something that we need to start working and emphasizing the diversity, do need to count, and that we need to do something to integrate it into the community. So, and, and in order for me to be more specific, I had it to hear it, interpret it, evaluate, and respond to the community needs. Four main things that came out of my project to the heart and soul. I went to churches where that's the most common place to find minorities. I went from churches to churches because I knew that was the place that I can find them. Why? Because that's where I was found. So I went to the church and I said, tell me what you want, what you need to hear, what you need to see happen in this community to make you feel part of it. And I said, well, I need information about safety. I want to, I want to know that the police is not going to deport me. I want to know that the police is my friend so I can come forward and report crime. That was about safety. Then I hear about the issues about health and wellness. They said, we need to know where the doctors are. Where can we go? I need to know where my kids are as far as education. When is the next PTO? Can there be there someone that can interpret it for me or translate for me so I can understand? So when I got those four things and I knew I hear about recreation, we need to know, can we go to the park? Can my kids play safely? And I said, certainly you can. So four main things that I definitely recognize out of my interviews and the randomness. So Carolyn, Carolyn, I'm sure she's very familiar to what it's like, the process of heart and soul. It is about asking people questions. And when you, mm-hmm. you have asked enough and you start hearing about the randomness and randomness, oh, we need to need about safety, health, education, recreation, and I said, there you go. I got it. I got four main things that the community right now needs. And right now, currently, we're working with the police department, with the sheriff's department. Yesterday, I was at the meeting for the uh, human rights organizations that is looking to, uh, um, they're advocating for the youth and Navajo nations. The Four Corners area is not just composed of Hispanic people. We have Native Americans that they, too, they're trying to make the community to understand that they we're, 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 we're not just Hispanic, we're many other cultures. And we're working with them. And I said, let's team it up. Let's team up and let the police understand that the minorities, they need to come together to a community meeting. Somehow we're going to have to make it happen. 
But since I have identified safety as a priority right now, I'm working with this organization and say, we're going to start going to the churches. We're going to go and we're going to talk to them and we're going to tell them there's no fear to this. So when we start responding to the community needs or chances for the community to hear it and to then become part of the community, when you start tackling down their needs first, that's mm-hmm. one way to integrate the minorities into the system. So that's a great point to actually uh, to go where to go where the people are that you're trying to reach, uh, and to start start the conversation. Um, there's a great comment on the the document right now from Sue McCormick. Sue, are you still on the line from Essex Junction in Vermont? I'd love for you to to hi. This is you. Sue. Hi, this is Sue. Hi, Sue. Uh, you, uh, you've written a really great example on the Google Doc about a project that you're working on that sounds very similar to what Monica was just talking about around starting these conversations. I wonder if you could share a little bit of, of, of that project with us. Sure. Well, I'm here in Essex Junction, Vermont, and, um, you know, we're, I think right now our population is probably about 96% uh, white. Um, but Burlington is the site of one, uh, the Burlington area. Burlington's about seven miles from Essex. And we are the site of one of ten federal refugee resettlement programs around the country. And the population is getting increasingly diverse. And Burlington is, is quite a bit more diverse than Essex. And in Essex, I would say that our population, um, our minority population, it has been quite invisible in any kind of leadership role. Um, and uh, the Heart and Soul Board, a couple of the core members on our board, the community advisory team, we saw this uh, grant as an opportunity to be proactive and um, to start to help shift that dynamic. And we could look to what was happening in Burlington, a neighboring community, as a kind of a cautionary tale about what would happen if we weren't proactive. And in Burlington, um, there has been increasing pressure on the schools to have a more diverse faculty, have a more culturally competent curriculum. And um, this has been a, a challenge that African-American community members have been really concerned about for decades and they're being joined by an increasing number of new Americans who really have high hopes for their students and have been very disappointed in the quality of education that their students are receiving. And the the um, pressure that the advocacy groups have been putting on the school really erupted in a very, very challenging set of circumstances over the past year or so, which almost cost the superintendent her job. It caused a lot of strife in the community between community leaders, educators, and others. And so in Essex, we were really able to point to what was happening in Burlington and to encourage um, this community to embrace a a proactive stance around trying to start to incorporate people of color in leadership positions. And so our case was if we don't start to do this kind of thing, we're going to end up in a similar situation. And people in the community were very responsive to that, and we began our work uh, together with a cultural competency training. We have several people of color on the board. We've trained several people of color to facilitate our meetings, and we've um, I just uh, facilitated a neighborhood conversation with 15 new Americans from Bhutan and a, and a translator, and we have a lot more work to do, but we've at least uh, made a beginning, and we're really starting to raise awareness, I think, about the value of reaching out to uh, these different groups. Fantastic. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for Good sharing. Work. So, uh, Sue mentioned uh, receiving a grant to, to start working on this. There's a great question here. It's, it's come in from someone in California that chose to remain unnamed. Uh, but the question is, what are some free and inexpensive ways for elected officials I'll expand it to other uh, organizations and community groups to expand their knowledge of diversity issues. So, Carolyn, maybe you can um, point people to some resources or some some good ways to to get started in this kind of work. 
the question was, how can decision makers, elected officials, get more exposure to diverse communities? Did I catch it correctly, Bonnie? To expand their knowledge about these issues and uh, and, and learn more about them. Well, uh, there's several excellent resources. Many of the organizations doing this kind of work, America Speaks has a lot of monographs and articles on its website. You can just go to www.americaspeaks.org. Uh, Everyday Democracy, which I saw a couple of you are actually working in study circles in your communities, has some excellent resources on their website. The National League of Cities has had a working group on citizen engagement, which is actually led by public officials. Um, and they have developed resource books that really are completely available to any, again, that's a site that's probably not used by many people other than city staff and elected officials, but of many, many stories of how this is done in communities and many resources have been created by elected officials themselves to get ideas about doing this. For those of you in California, uh, the, the um, oh, I've just gone blank on the name of it. The David Davenport Institute, led by Pete Peterson, is specializing in doing this sort of work with local officials and giving them exposure, particularly, uh, you know, I was at a conference in Pete just two days ago, and he was very candid about talking about that in the same way that Monica talked about a deep-seated fear of police in the Hispanic community, this may come as a surprise to a lot of people, but today a lot of local officials effectively, especially, have a very deep-seated fear of the public. So they've actually reduced their everyday interaction with members in their own community that are not familiar to them. So I think there's a the David Davenport Institute site would give some great examples about how just to create the opportunity for elected officials or decision makers to have informal interactions with those parts of the population that they lack experience with. I, I think I believe it is an accurate generalization, although we could find many, many examples on the opposite side of what I'm going to say. Most people who are carrying public responsibility today, whether that's as an elected official or as a public servant, really want to do the right thing. But either they don't have the experience, they feel trapped in a bureaucratic system. So if you think of the examples Sue gave, the examples Monica has given, the ones I've given, it's how do we create potentially it's first informal circumstances for the public that is afraid and hasn't been listened to, for elected officials that have built up a stereotype of the public as having to protect themselves against the public, we really need new experiences with each other. And sometimes that needs to be social and informal very early before you start in a significant engagement process. That's yeah. a terrific point, Alan. I mean, uh, sorry, Monica, did you want to answer that? I wanted to answer that. She said she talked about very, being very informal, and I think it's, mm -hmm. it is true. For our community, means anything that is dressing green and blue or gray means danger, hide, hiding sick, right? Kind of like that. And, and I, I, I recently read about the um, African community that for them the police means kind of riots. You know, it's always something danger. So meeting people in an informal way like we did ourselves, we did like an open house and we invited police to a potluck. And um, that kind of was very informal. We asked the police to show up in regular uniform. Just to give you an example of what is kind of informal, what has worked for me so far, it's invite the police in the presence and come and show us a regular civilian. Don't bring your uniform. Let them get to know you and then we go from there. You know, I, we should, I love I, this. I, we also should have said that the Orton Family Foundation has extraordinary resources on its website in these the issues of how to make it easier for public officials to get engaged in this work. So, can we talk a little bit a, a little bit more about that? There's there's another great question on uh, that's come through. It's about how to include people in a meaningful way and make sure that they're truly engaged. Um, so let's let's talk about some of those 
uh, techniques that, that you've both used and experienced in the past. Um, can you share some examples? Monica, you just mentioned uh, creating these events where the, the local police can come in civilian clothes and, and get to know people uh, on uh, out of their professional context. Is there anything else that you've used in your community that um, that that's worked really well? Yes. Uh, one of the things that we, we strategized, my husband and I, my husband is uh, 100% white, blue eyes, 6'4", um, Swedish type of guy, and I'm Mexican, I'm a little darker, shorter, and I said, you know, when people start seeing diversity together, you know, they're probably going to like it. So my husband and I, we've been visiting people. We are the officially waiting crashes incorporated. We get to invite many <laughs> events, and then we just showed up, and I said, if people see you, that you are a different color, honey. You know, I'm sure that people's gonna warm up to you. My husband is a public service. He's a, he's working for the Parks and Recreation Director in the city of Cortez. And I cannot even tell you how many people are just offering my husband their hands. And I say, they try to make an effort to communicate. My husband makes an effort to communicate. And it's just, for me, it was the visitation on Sunday evenings where people gather in the local churches. That's what is working mm-hmm. for me. We just go and show up and we sit down and we, we speak to them. By doing this for several weeks now, I've been willing to say, we're, we're doing this for the community. Would you, would you, would you allow us to come in here to your location and bring the police? Would you allow us to talk about education? Would you allow us to talk about health and wellness? I got the, uh, Montezuma Health Department sending me letters and I said, Monica, here, translate this for your community. We're creating websites right now that we're going to start filling in the context, uh, sometime next week, um, one from Heart and Soul, translated into Alma y Corazón in Espanol, just in Spanish for the Hispanic community. See, as I build a relationship, I'm building this network of information with them. This is what's coming up. I'm kind of building anticipation for them to, to begin to be comfortable. But the way I'm doing it is simply by understanding the community needs and understanding mm-hmm. that my presence right now with them um, uh it's 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 uh it's a priority right now. I could be sitting down in my couch every Sunday and I can tell you every Sunday I'm visiting, whether it's a Catholic church, a Christian church, Mormon church, I don't care. I just go and sit down and contemplate first. Because first I have to observe the rules. I have to observe what the organization they belong. Then I make contact with the uh leaders, whether it's the priest, whether it's the minister, it doesn't really matter. And I said, Look, I got heart and soul translated in Spanish for you. Would you mind to read it? What do you think about it? I come back next week and we can discuss it. Sometimes they can only give me just 20 minutes. Sometimes they say, here, here's your audience. Talk to them. Tell them what it's about. I read about it. I was interested about it. Then slowly but surely we're building that. But it takes a lot of presence and a lot of will, even if they shut down the doors for the first time. So it's just got to be present. Mm-hmm. No, it's not an option. <laughs> so I can say that Cortez is very, very fortunate that Monica is there and is committed to this in the way that she is. And I can also say that every community we've ever worked in, there are Monicas, and they want to do what Monica is doing. We just don't usually create the opportunity and space for that to happen. But I want to make a link between Monica's commitment Partly, and I don't want me to speak for you, Monica, so come back in, but she's doing this because she knows heart and soul is a real process that is going to make a real difference in her community for her people and for the whole community. So the fundamental question that the person asked, the bottom line is you don't engage citizens. You don't even begin the informal process unless there's a real outcome that is going to be tangible in their lives and that it's possible to describe to them what that outcome will be. So that, you know, our trust is so broken between our people and our institutions that without that confidence factor that clearly Monica has, she would not have her husband spend her time with her like this convincing their communities to come together to participate if she did not actually know, she knows that it's going to make a difference. And that's where you see citizen engagement processes that fail. It's because the work was not done at the front end to lay the foundation that when I commit my time, when I convince my neighbor to come with me, we are going to be listened to 
And together with other people in our community, we're really going to be making decisions, influencing decisions. Right. It's, it's a Nostradamus uh, form or pattern or plan that I've been developed, but it's been working for me. And I'm sure, I think I had the opportunity to talk to Alice Montes uh, from the Orton Foundation. And she asked me, Monica, can you write me a blog and tell me what has been working for you that, that, is, uh, that we can use it as an example to reach out other minorities? And, and I can tell you, you know, I, I really don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning as I go, but I can tell you this. The, for Hispanic communities, relationships are everything. And if we can understand that, and, and, and I recently attended to a class that is called Bridges Out of Poverty. And what he says, you know, a lot of times, you know, in poverty, uh, you know, you know, the face-to-face contact is what matters to them. And I guess mm-hmm. I've just been following that example and I continue to use it because it's what's working for me and my community. There's much, much to be done, and I can go on and on, but I don't want to make promises to the uh, community that I, that I not can fulfill. But if I can, you can identify at least three main needs. Go for the needs. Go for what a people is is needed. You don't have to take ten because you're going to fight a hundred. But if you can make only two, three things that you know you can get accomplished, go for it. I think. Uh... I think one of the points, Monica, that you just made around you know what's right for your community uh, is really important and having a really deep understanding of the critical needs of the people that you're working with and working for is is really important. I would love in the, the few minutes that we have left, if there are other people on the line that have been doing similar work that have examples of tactics that they've used that have been really successful or, or tactics that have failed Terribly. Uh, if you if you would like to take yourself off mute, we'll do this as an experiment and see if we can we can do this without talking over each other. But if there are people that would like to share some examples, please jump in now. This is Larry Schooler in Austin. Um, I, I just want to thank the presenters. This has been extraordinarily valuable information, and I really appreciate having such uh, great you know firsthand accounts. Um, I, I don't claim to to have any real expertise in this, but one you know, sort of tactic or set of tactics that I think we've been working to hone here in Austin that's been meaningful is the use of something that we've been calling meeting in a box, which is essentially uh, building on the principles that Monica and and Carolyn talked about earlier of going where people are already going. So rather than saying, hey, come to a city meeting in a city facility and there will be city officials there and those people you don't trust or that place that you don't, you know, find very inviting, We've been convening people in places they're already going. It might be the Asian American Cultural Center here in Austin, or it might be uh, the annex to the church that caters to a Spanish-speaking population, and have a, a meeting, uh, the contents of the meeting we were going to hold in public be available in multiple languages to the people who want to facilitate their own meeting for their own community with people that they may feel more comfortable with uh, anyway. So that kind of of engagement we've found is um, helpful in terms of of convincing people of the value of participation without uh, making them feel they have to make themselves more vulnerable than they're willing to uh, by, you know, going to a public event that they may or may not even be able to make in spite of accommodations that might be made. So um, I don't know if that's exactly what you're looking for, but that's certainly something we've been looking at very closely. That's yeah, a that's a great example. example. Thank you. Uh, do we have some other people? Anyone else that wants to jump in? Can you be as quick off the mark as Chris? This is Carolyn, and I have a couple of thoughts on a couple of other specific questions, if I may. Sure. A gentleman, Please, a gen- a gentleman from Con- Connecticut asked about low-income uh people being involved in home energy, <coughs> excuse me, efficiency audits and programs. Yes. And I don't know the circumstances, William, where you are, but we've run across many instances where both a combination of 501c3s working in energy and uh, efficiency audit programs actually have available foundation funds that can legitimately be used to pay low-income participants to participate in these programs. And I think in that issue, in that population, it's an extremely legitimate thing to do because the payoff for everyone 
in terms of redu and increasing the energy efficiency of so many homes in a much quicker way it makes it well worth paying for participation. I would not say that in all circumstances. There are times in which paying for participation mixes motivations, but I think specifically in that context, it's a very, there are, number one, there are funds for it, and it can be a very wise thing to do. The question just above that about online and smartphone approaches, one of the things that America Speaks has begun to experiment with is doing outreach by texting on smartphones. Again, particularly in public housing projects, places where that is the primary mode of communication that people use. So I think there's much to be learned and much to be explored in that arena. The dilemma in general with online outreach, we, we have sort of carried an old style definition of what the digital divide is. And we need to get much more sophisticated. Again, there are many, many communities that are not really using they're, although they may have computers, they have access, they're not really using their computers for this way of working in their communities. So you need to do a particularly a kind of inventory around the demographic groups in your community to understand if they actually respond to outreach efforts online. Thanks, Bonnie. That's uh thank you, Carolyn. That was great to hit some of those questions. Um, just on that final point around doing an audit of how people are using um, using their technologies, what's the best way for people to to get started on something like that if they were if they were thinking about doing that that piece of work? Oh, that's a great question. I'm not sure I have the best resource. Uh, there's a policy group in Washington called Democracy and Technology. Um, Rebecca, you might want to check that, but my guess is that there would be links on their website that would lead to that practical, uh, that level of practicality. Okay, terrific, thank you. Now, we, we are running up very close to time here. Um, I, I wish we had more time to go through some of these questions. What I would encourage everyone to do on the line uh, is, is take a read through. There's, there's some terrific questions in here and some great notes. If you have anything to add, if you have some insight or, or your own personal perspectives, please do jump in and, and add some comments to the questions um, so that we can get some information to these people that have put out put out these questions and um, try and get some of them answered. I know that everyone on the call has some, some amazing experience collectively and, and we could really do a lot of good work together. I, I want to finish off the call today. Um, with a, a question to Monica and Carolyn, uh, we always like to finish these calls with a, uh, a call to action. So what what would you say uh, to people on the call today that that is the best thing that they can do to go and get started on working on these issues in their community? As soon as they hang up the phone uh, or when they first wake up tomorrow morning, uh, if they want to go get started and, and really make a difference and carry on some of this work, what is the first thing that people should be thinking about? Alan, do you want to kick us off? I'd be happy to. Um, this may surprise some of you, but I actually would say the first thing to do is get a better grasp of who your whole community is. Who makes up your community today? And then whose voices in that whole community are heard and whose voices are not heard, and then look for the linkages, look for the trusted relationships, the trusted organizations that you could essentially map your community that there is a link to every population in your community and engage some other people with you to do that. It's a fun, enticing task, and I guarantee you will learn things about your community you didn't know. No that will intrigue you about how the community could operate more effectively as a whole community with every voice being heard. Fantastic. So uh, building an ecosystem map, understanding the linkages between the different com components of your community and really finding ways to tap into them. So Monica, can, can you... Can yeah, you share a, a, a good uh, action for people to take? Sure. If, if anything, I want you to remember out of this conversation, it's uh, saying in a different uh, way than Carolyn mentioned, uh, be aware of the presence 
of who the people around you is and who they are. That will be my number one. My number two will be awareness of the community needs. Whatever group or organization you're trying to reach out, find out what the needs are and go for them. You can't decide if you want to, but go. And identify who your friends are, who the advocates or organizations that are willing to work with you. And last but not least, foster those relationships. Fantastic. And Monica, how would you oh. recommend people start to understand those needs? Are they are they just going out and asking people? How do they yep. start to identify yep. those needs? <laughs> it's very easy. We got a model uh, in, in, in the Orton Family Foundation. You can reach out to the heart and soul and find out what this organization, excuse me, organization and project is doing in the community. Get the points that you need, but it's really by going out there and asking people what you like about your place, what you dislike about your place, what would you like to change. And it's a dialogue that is going to lead you into maybe more questions, but the more randomness, the more that you are prone to say, very good, this is what they're telling me. Fantastic. Well, with that, my friends, uh, it's, it's just hit the top of the hour again, and uh, that concludes our call for today. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. Uh, this is the last call for the year. Um, so to everyone, happy holidays. And uh, thank you so much for being part of this conversation. Please do stay in this document and help us fill it out so that it, it becomes a really rich resource. And uh, from, from myself, from everyone at the Orton Family Foundation, and I'm, I'm sure I can speak for everyone on the call, a huge thanks to both Monica and Carolyn for joining us today and sharing such great insight and experience. And uh, with that, uh, I would like to say goodbye and, and have a, a great end of the year and, and happy 2013. Thank Thanks you very much, everybody. Great... Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so all. much. Thanks for the invitation.